Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. As the kids are returning to their seat, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn now with me to Luke chapter 1. We're beginning this this new series in Luke, and we're going to look just this morning at the first four verses of Luke's gospel where he explains to us why he's writing this gospel uh, that, that he's writing and gives us some idea of kind of how we should read this gospel that he has written for us. So let's give our attention to, to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. This is Luke's introduction. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Father, as we look at your word this morning, I ask that you would strengthen me to preach clearly to preach in a way that matters. That your spirit would indeed touch our hearts and set our eyes again on the hope of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, this is uh, clearly it's just an introduction. He doesn't really get into the meat of things. Uh, But there's there's some important clues as to, to how we should read the gospel of Luke in these four verses. And that's what, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So there's kind of four points to the sermon. Uh, what Luke is writing, how Luke is writing, to whom Luke is writing, and why Luke is writing. And so we're going to look at those four points, and, and I'm going to do my best as, as, as the Spirit helps me to, to deliver this sermon from the clutches of just being a lecture and, and try to say something that, that, that really matters. So first of all, what Luke is writing. He begins this this way. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. And then he says, it seemed good to me also to do that. So so Luke tells us right there that that what he's wanting to communicate to us is something that has already been communicated. So he's not writing something new that has never been heard. Other people have written about it. We'll get to that again in a minute. But what he's writing is is the narrative, the story, the the unfolding of these things that have been accomplished among them. He's he's saying, look, something has happened. There was this guy that lived and died and rose. Something about his life matters in a way that, that other people's life didn't. Now, I'm not saying that People's lives don't matter. Don't miss what I'm saying. Luke's point is that that what Jesus did has accomplished something, has fulfilled something that other people's lives didn't. Indeed, what we're going to see is as we read through the the, the rest of the Gospel of Luke, the argument that he's going to make is that Jesus' life, the story of Jesus' life, what he did accomplished something that Israel as a whole didn't accomplish. And that's what he's wanting to communicate to us. That what Christ has done 
in his living, his dying, and his rising again, has accomplished what God set out for Israel to accomplish, but never did. Jesus has accomplished all of that. And and, and so it's interesting, when you read Luke's gospel, he goes to great length as he unfolds this narrative of what has been accomplished. He goes to great length to attach Jesus' life and, and work, his person and work, back to the story of Israel. Over and over and over, just like Matthew does. I mean, to some degree, all the gospel writers do this. But but Luke does it in a way that he's wanting us to see that Jesus is the continuation of that story that began with Israel. That, That Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises that were made to Israel. And so he's writing the story of Christ that we might see that. Now, the second thing that we need to understand about this is that what he is writing informs how we read it. So so when we think about history, and and this has been at at the popular level, I want to make clear, I'm not not making any kind of academic argument about how history is done. I get that there's all kinds of fun debates about all of that. But at the popular level, the way we typically use history, and we've seen this be kind of a a flashpoint over the last few years, the way we use history typically is to explain how we got where we are. We, We look back and we're like, oh, X happened, Y happened, Z happened. That's why we ended up here. And and that's kind of why there's been all this debate about what gets included in the story. Some people want certain things included. Other people don't want that included. And, 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 and that's typically, at the popular level, how we view history. Now, here's why this matters for, for this, this sermon and, and, and how we read Luke. Sometimes we come to the Bible and read it as history in that same way, as the explanation of how we got where we are. We do that at a, at a national level. We do that at a personal level. We, we do that in, in all kinds of ways. And here's the problem with that. We often, when we do that, end up misreading the story. Because inevitably, what we do with all history when we read it that way is we justify our position by what we've read rather than letting what we read speak to the rightness or wrongness of our position. So so when when we say, what is it that Luke is writing? He is writing history. He he is writing the the historical story of Jesus, but we need to think carefully about what he's doing. What he's doing is he's coming to the story of Jesus more in the way that we would write a biography. Here's all the things that that led up or or, or that, that... made this person's life and made this person who they were. But what's interesting is what what Luke does is he goes back to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament story, the Old Testament history, the Old Testament promises and prophecies, and says these are the things that led up to and made Jesus who he was. Now, why do these two different versions of history and and, and kind of how we approach the story matter? I've already hinted at it a little bit, but I want to spell it out very, very clear. In in the first version, that that I think is very problematic. When we approach the gospel as historic in that way, what we tend to do 
is we use the gospel to justify our present position. If we've been a Christian very long, we use the gospel, we use the Bible story we use to justify where we are because we think, I'm, I'm right. And we may be, but we might not be. The, the better thing to do, because this is really what Scripture's trying to do to us, is not justify where we are, but show us the one to whom we should be mastered, or by whom we should be mastered. So when we read the gospel and say it's history, we don't need to read it in this, in this popular way that we deal with history of saying, okay, so this justifies why we do the things we do. And like, what we need to do is go, okay, so this gives us a picture of Jesus and his historic work. It gives us a picture of the one who defines or should define everything about us. See, in that way, this history of Jesus, this story of Jesus, this narrative of the things that have been accomplished among them becomes not explanatory, but interpretive of us. And that's the key difference. When we look at it as just explanatory, we end up using the story to justify why we are where we are. When we look at it as interpretive, we use the story as a mirror to interpret ourselves, to interpret our heart, to interpret our actions, to interpret our thoughts. And you come away with two very different responses when you do that. The, 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 first, the, the first response you come away with, or in the first situation, when you use it just as explanatory, you come away justifying yourself. But when you read the Bible as interpretive of us, we come away needing mercy. We come away going, oh, if I'm not attached to that one, if I'm not attached to him, then I have no hope. I have no security. I have no identity. But in him, I do. See, it's a very different approach to how we read the story. And, and so it's important for us to see what Luke is doing. What Luke is doing is he's announcing what has been accomplished by Jesus. So that's how we are going to approach this story. The second thing we learn uh, in, in this passage, and this is a little bit more of, a, of an apologetic point, is how Luke is writing this narrative. He says, you know, I'm going to read this passage over and over because it all kind of makes the, the different points. In as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. So here's what Luke admits right up front. I'm not the first one to do this. Other people have written about the life of Jesus. Now, we know at least three others, Matthew, Mark, and John, right? And probably not all of those have yet been written. Mark almost certainly had. Matthew, it depends on who you ask. John almost certainly hadn't been written when Luke wrote. But other people had. In, in fact, he says, many others have written about the life of Jesus. Why? Because what he did was phenomenal. He, he was a, a point of, I mean, it's kind of like when we see a historic figure today, somehow, and, and I don't know how people do this, I realize that people are incredibly gifted in different ways, but, but a historic figure can pop up, and then all of a sudden there's like 30 biographies within like a month. 
It's amazing. Someone gets elected president or some big office, and then all of a sudden, quicker than you can read the book, it seems like 30 new books have been published about that person's life. In the same way, Jesus made such a splash in his day that people were like, wait a minute. Who is this guy? What is his story? It needs to be written down. It needs to be remembered. It needs to be communicated. It needs to be studied. It needs to be thought through. And Luke was aware of at least many of those writings. But then also, he says, there were these eyewitnesses and ministers. And and, and, I won't get into all the nerd stuff, but but that's the same group. It's not that there were eyewitnesses and ministers. The way the Greek is written, the, the eyewitnesses were the ministers. He's talking about the apostles here. The guys that saw it happen and then were sent out to tell everybody what happened. He said there were, there were those guys' accounts also. And they, they delivered the word to us. So he used those sources. And what Luke says is, is, is having followed all of this for a long time past, and, and, and another way to, to think about what he's saying there, it wasn't that he was just sitting back kind of watching the story unfold, but... But he had investigated. So having investigated all of this from the beginning is another way that that could be translated. In other words, Luke had done his homework. He had read the other accounts. He had heard what the eyewitnesses said. Probably Luke had been traveling with Paul. He was probably the same Luke that's a traveling companion of Paul in the book of Acts. He had seen and heard and thought through. Okay, here's what actually happened. And what's amazing is he doesn't, in how he writes this, he's not in any way denigrating these other accounts. He's not saying they were wrong, I'm going to get it right. He said, they wrote something that was good and helpful, and I'm also going to write something that's good and helpful. And so he used these sources, and he did the research, and he talked to people, and he heard the sermons of the eyewitnesses, and, and he, from that, compiled this narrative of the life of Jesus and what it was that he had accomplished in the fulfillment of Israel's story. So he used sources. And here's the thing, that doesn't need to freak us out at all. Not, not in the least. In fact, it should, it should give us assurance. Because Luke isn't acting like, oh, I just got this word dropped down from the sky. No, he used his brain and he used reason and he did the work. And he said, this is what happened. But he's not just recording bare facts. He's not just saying on, you know, January 1st, whatever, Jesus went here and did acts. He's also interpreting history. He's saying Jesus went here and did acts. And that matters because the Bible back here said the Messiah would. Jesus went over here and and he did why? And that matters because that shows that he's the true king of Israel. He went this way and did this thing, and that matters because it shows that he is, in fact, the new Israel in whom we have life. He went here, and he died, and he rose, and that matters. And and so what what he's doing is he's, he's theologically interpreting, in light of the Old Testament, the sources and, and the story of Jesus. So that's how he's writing. Third... To whom Luke is writing. He spells it out very clearly, it seems. It seemed good also, uh, to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And you're like, ah, that's who he's writing for, Theophilus. 
Here's the problem. Theophilus, we have no idea who he is. He's only mentioned twice in the Bible. Once here, I'm writing to you, Theophilus, and once in Acts, in the, in the first couple verses of Acts, which Luke also wrote, saying, like I wrote to you before, Theophilus, I'm going to continue the story now. Other than those two statements, we have no idea who Theophilus is. There's all, people have ventured all kinds of guesses. Perhaps he was some rich patron who had come to Christ and, 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 and wanted to know more. And so he was kind of a benefactor to Luke and said, hey, let me, let me just kind of pay for your life while you get this story written. Maybe. Perhaps because of the, 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 the name most excellent Theophilus, because of that, uh, that, that addition, that adjective. Some people have argued that he was a, a Roman, you know, kind of higher up, a, a Roman official of some sort, because that's the type of address you would use for a Roman official. And, and, and so some have argued he's a Roman official who had come to faith and needed to be discipled. Perhaps. Some have argued that probably this guy wasn't actually named Theophilus at all, but, but Luke used this kind of random name to protect someone's identity because perhaps they were a Roman official. And so he came up with this name Theophilus, which means lover of God, Theos, God, Phileo, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo is the, the, the word for love in Greek. So, so God lover. I'm going to write you the story. And he did this as kind of like a, a witness protection program. Perhaps... Perhaps that's the case. Now, the, the problem is, and the, and the reason it's so difficult, is because even when we look in history, there, there's various options of who this could be. And the other problem is, none of those explanations that I just offered are mutually exclusive. They could all be true at the same time. It could be some rich benefactor Roman ruler that Luke changed his name to not get him in trouble that's paying for this to be written. Another option that, that a lot of people say is Theophilus wasn't actually a particular person at all. He was every lover of God who needs to be convinced of the truth of the gospel. And that's why we can't nail down exactly who he is. Because, because Luke was writing to every lover of God. Now, I, I'm somewhat compelled by that idea. And here's why. Because no matter who you say Theophilus is, everybody agrees this was also written for us as lovers of God. See, in the end, it, it, some people try to argue that it really matters that we know who Theophilus is if we're going to understand the Gospel of Luke. But it can't matter that much because God hasn't told us who it was. So, so maybe there was a Theophilus Maybe there was somebody else that Luke called Theophilus. Or maybe every lover of God is supposed to read Luke's gospel. This account of what has been fulfilled, what was accomplished in their time. And learn something from it. And be instructed by it. Certainly the latter is the case. Whatever you make of who Theophilus was or wasn't, the latter is certainly the case. You lover of God. God lover, I'm going to write a story for you. I'm going to write a story about what has been accomplished so that you can understand it. I'm going to tell you all about Jesus and his ministry so that you'll know who he is. 
Now that brings us to the purpose. And I realize we're not real far into the sermon. I'm already on my fourth point. Perhaps this is a, a new trend in 2024, or perhaps this point's going to be a little bit longer than the other three. We'll see. The purpose of Luke's writing. Again, he spells it out very clear that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Here's here's why Luke was writing. That this lover of God, that you, lover of God, could have certainty about what you've been taught about Jesus. That's the purpose. When we read Luke's gospel, he's wanting us to have certainty about Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's story. He's wanting us to have certainty about Jesus as someone who really did live, die, and rise again. He's wanting us to have certainty about Jesus as the true Son of God in the flesh. He's wanting us to have certainty about Jesus as the one who came for sinners. He's wanting us to have certainty about Jesus as the one who loved and built his kingdom on those that the world rejected. He's wanting us to have certainty about Jesus as the true king. He's wanting us to have certainty about Jesus as the true seed of Abraham, as the new Moses, as the true seed of David, as the fulfiller of the new covenant, as the Messiah. He's wanting us to have certainty about Jesus and what he accomplished and the hope that we have in him. Now, why? Why does that matter? Because the argument of the Bible is this. Jesus defines everything about who we are. Everything. We, we often use the, the, the idea of hope, security, and identity around here. I, I say that a lot because I think, I think those three ideas, our hope, our security, and identity, I think they kind of encapsulate in a helpful way, in, in, in a kind of summary way, what it is that we're all longing for in this life. We, we all want to know that, there, that, that tomorrow's worth waiting for, that there's hope. We all want to know that, that somehow we'll get to tomorrow, that there's security. We all want to know that we're someone that matters, that we have an identity, that it matters that, that we're here at all. We all want to know those things. We're all, whether, whether we can kind of openly and, and clearly admit it and put our finger on how, we're all pursuing those things in everything we do. In our families, in our careers, in our hobbies, in how we spend our time, our money, our, 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 all, like in everything. In everything, we're pursuing a hope, security, and identity. And here's the problem. When we pursue that in this world, inevitably, it fails. We fail. The stuff that we're looking to to find our hope, security, and identity can't support that weight. It, it, can't, it can't bear up under that weight. And so inevitably, it fails. Even good stuff. I'm not just talking about like when you, when you pursue it in, in, in you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll or whatever. I'm talking about when you pursue it in good stuff, in your family, your work, things that, that we're actually called to do. Nothing finite 
can bear the weight of infinity. Nothing attached to this world can bear the weight of eternity. That's why it always fails. When we're looking for our hope and our security and our identity in this world and the things that it offers, good or bad, that's why it fails and we're left in despair. And we're left in these crisis moments wondering, who am I? Is tomorrow worth worth waiting for? Is tomorrow even going to come? What Luke wants us to know and to have is a certainty about our hope, security, and identity that this world can't provide us. And that we can't provide for ourselves. And that we can't provide for each other. And so he says, I'm going to tell you a different story. I'm going to tell you the story about Jesus. I'm going to tell you the story of how he has fulfilled all the promises of God. I'm going to tell you the story about how he's the true Israel. And if we want hope, security, and identity, we have to go to him for it. And when we do, we most assuredly get it. So that's one reason why this purpose matters. Now, there's another reason that's certainly attached. If everything about us, our hope, security, and identity is to be defined by Christ, then that also means that, that like, hey, how we live, what we do in this world is defined by Christ. Not in a legalistic way. Not in a legalistic way at all. Not, not, in, not in the kind of way, and, and I want to be clear about what I mean by legalism. Legalism is do this in order to be attached to Christ. Do this in order to be saved. That's legalism. You are attached to Jesus, and he is a particular way, therefore you live this way. That's not legalism. That's Christianity. That, that's a big difference. We're not not talking about how we live in order to become attached to Jesus. We're talking about the fact that we, we have been. We are united to him by faith. He is the son of God. He is the savior of the world. He is all this. And we've been united to him by faith. We've been brought into his kingdom. And therefore called to live in a particular way. Now, here's the, the, the real kind of, for me anyway, mind-bending part of this story. Another way legalism can work is you've been brought in. Now, to stay in, you've got to do X, Y, and Z. Or you'll get kicked right out. Now, I, I understand that church discipline, uh, that's part of, the, part of the party. I get it. But here's what's not part of the party. At any point from Genesis 1 or Genesis 3 on, If you don't get it all right, I'm not going to keep you in. Because think about what we saw with Abraham. Abraham, here's a promise. I'm going to ignore that promise. Abraham, here's that same promise again. I'm going to ignore that promise again. Abraham, here's that same promise again. I'm going to ignore that promise again. Abraham, here's that same promise again. Think about David and what we saw with him. Think about the the, the, the stories that we read in 1 Samuel. Think about Peter. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to get out of the boat. I'm going to do all the things. I'm going to cut Malchus's ear off. May I am ride or die. Until some kid is like, weren't you with him? 
And then I'm going to deny you. And what did Jesus do? He restored him. He restored him and said, Peter, go feed my sheep. Go pastor these people. Go love these people that have a hard time hanging on to me just like you did. So, so here's kind of the, 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 the difficult part is, is there, there is a standard to which we're called to as Christians, right? And, 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 to, to, and so we need to have certainty about who Jesus is because it's all defined in him. But we don't meet that standard in order to get in or in order to stay in. That's why it's grace from beginning to end. But that's also why we need certainty about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. That's why we need certainty that he actually is the fulfillment of the promises to Israel, that he is the true Israel, and that in him we're grafted in as well. Because if we don't have that certainty, we will inevitably fall into one of those two legalisms. Either thinking it's my performance that gets me attached or it's my performance that keeps me attached. But when we have certainty about who Jesus is, it's not that we don't pursue righteousness. It's not that we don't pursue holiness. It's not that we, that we don't do good works. It's not any of that. It's that we rest in him because he's accomplished all of it. And from that place of rest, from that place of standing, from that place of, of, of having a hope and a security and identity, we live in this world. That's why we need certainty. The third reason that we need certainty, hey, hanging on the wall, and this is as close as probably we've ever gotten or ever will get to like a vision Sunday, but it's the first Sunday of a new year, so it makes sense, right? We have this vision statement that we use as our affirmation of faith earlier. We, we read the, the scriptural basis for it in Ephesians 4 earlier as the, the exhortation to holiness. And it talks about this idea that we would be a community of people whose hope is set wholly in Jesus Christ and are each equipped to work for the building up of the body of Christ in love until we attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God. Guess what we need if we're going to do that? Certainty about who Jesus is. Certainty about who Jesus is. That's why in that passage when we read it, Paul, Paul tells us he gave apostles and, and prophets and preachers and teachers to instruct us. What, what was their job? To instruct, to instruct the church in what? Jesus. Who he was, what he had accomplished, and why that mattered. So that, knowing that, knowing who Jesus is, what he had accomplished, and why that mattered, they would be equipped to build one another up in love until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. If we're going to, to fulfill the vision of Christ Church Conway, we need to have certainty about who Jesus is, or we will absolutely get off course. Churches do it all the time. I'm not arguing that we've never done it, but, but churches do it all the time. We get off course because, because we, we stop operating from a place of certainty about who Jesus is and start operating from a place of what do we do? 
in this world? How, how, do, how do we, and I'm not saying we're not supposed to do anything in this world. We are. It's the starting point that matters. And here's what's fascinating. When we start from the place of certainty about who Jesus is, all of a sudden, the stuff that we start doing in this world matters far more. Far more. And makes a far bigger impact. Maybe not with lots of numbers and and glory, but because it's actually giving life to people that need it. Because all of a sudden, when we're operating from a place of certainty about who Jesus is, the purpose for which Luke wrote, when we operate from that place, our ministry as a church is no longer about our glory. Our ministry as a church is no longer about people thinking we're awesome or doing something that's really authentic or, or vibrant or that matters. Why? Because we're certain about who Jesus is. And we're certain that he and not our ministry is the fulfillment of the promises of God. We're certain that what he has accomplished is the fulfillment of the promises, not what we've accomplished. We're certain that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not that we will. And and it, and it changes who we go after also. Because all of a sudden, we go after the people that he went after. And here's the thing. When when you look at who Jesus went after, it wasn't the cultural elite. He didn't shun them. He was willing for them to be part of it. But he went after the destitute. The the poor, which which means more in in Scripture than the financially poor. The, The people who were poor in this world, who had no reputation, who maybe were financially poor, but but they had no standing. They were the oppressed. They were the broken. They were the undone. They were the forgotten. They were the failed. He said, come here. Let's build a kingdom. Let me make you into the kingdom of God. When we're certain about who Jesus is, it changes everything about us. It changes everything about us individually. It changes everything about us collectively. It changes everything about how we do ministry. Because when we're certain about who he is, we're then able to stop using these stories in an explanatory way to explain how we got where we got and use them in an interpretive way that we might be mastered, as we sang earlier, by the word of God who is Jesus Christ. So it's absolutely imperative that we have certainty about who Jesus is and what he accomplished. And it's not imperative that we can have some ironclad apologetic. It's imperative that we can understand what our hope, our security, and our identity is so that we can then love the people in this world that we're called to love so that we can then minister from a place of having our hopes set wholly in Jesus Christ and build one another up. But if we're not certain about who Jesus is, we'll never accomplish that because we'll always be working at some level for our own glory. 
will always be working to gain hope, security, and identity rather than from a place of happiness. That's why I'm so excited about diving into the gospel. Because I want us as a church, I want as an individual, and all of us as individuals, to have this certainty so that we can operate from a place of hope, security, and identity, not for hope, security, and identity. Because those two little prepositions are worlds apart. And what we're called to as Christians is to operate from a place of hope, security, and identity in Christ because we're certain about who he is and what he's done. That's what Luke's all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the certainty that comes. And we pray that as we study Luke together, it would come. That we would be grounded individually and collectively in the gospel, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in his person and work. That we may operate as as, as people in your world and in this church. That we may operate as people who have hope, security, and identity. And are absolutely free, therefore, to love and show mercy to others. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.